From PRX and NPR, I'm Al Letson, and you're listening to State of the Reunion. Welcome to Miami, city of many accents and many differences that can be hard to bridge. It's been pretty much separated. All the little communities have their own little niche. Even the blacks didn't want to sit by me because of it. I wore the t-shirts and the short pants, and so they didn't want to be by me because I didn't make them look good. But all across the city, people are reaching across those lines, be they ones of class, ethnicity, or language. On the day of the earthquake, I knew that I needed to go and give back. You'll have people of Cuban descent, but you're also going to see the Colombian carnival tradition, the Uruguayan tradition. When I first moved to Miami, I thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool to have a band that would have influence from the Haitian culture, some influence from Cuba, some influence from the funk. Miami coming together. That's ahead on State of the Reunion. But first, this news. You're listening to State of the Reunion. I'm Al Edson. We're going to start the show by making you a little bit jealous because right now I am on the beach. Not just any beach, South Beach, Miami. But don't get too jealous, I'll be honest. I feel slightly out of place because everyone here is beautiful. I mean everyone, even their little dogs are cute. And I have a face and body for radio, but whatever, I'm on the beach and I'm going to enjoy it. The waves, the sand, the sun, it's so, I don't know, exotic. Even when you leave the beach, just walking the streets of Miami, it's so diverse, it can feel like traveling between nations. From a man hacking open a fresh coconut with a machete to Cuban domino players in Little Havana to the clubs of South Beach. Constant, constant traffic. Speakers blaring Haitian music in front of little Haiti storefronts. And Creole conversations. Spanish of every dialect. All of them add up to a wild cacophony of this international city. American, but perched on the edge of Latin America. But with all this diversity, it can feel a bit disjointed. Instead of blending in with one another, different ethnic communities exist as a patchwork, like isolated microcosms of their homeland. Cuba on one block, Haiti on the next, a million dollar yacht just blocks away from some of the poorest ghettos in the country. Every episode of State of the Reunion, we travel the country and look at community. Who are the people that bring it together? What are the issues they face? Today, we're exploring stories of people reaching over the boundaries of culture, class, and race from Little Havana to Liberty City to Little Haiti and to the shores of South Beach. Welcome to Miami. It was from the waves of Miami's beaches that the early Cuban exiles arrived in South Florida, fleeing Cuba on rafts and boats after Fidel Castro came to power. Since the 1960s, tens of thousands of Cubans have come here. The Cuban presence in Miami is strongly felt. There are whole suburbs that are majority Cuban. But no place in Miami is more identified with Cuba than Little Havana. Oh, Cuba, Cuba, Cuba. I never forgot my country. And no place in Little Havana more strongly than Versailles Cafe. That's, we remember our country. That's the reason why everybody comes over here. It's been here some, uh, I think 32 or 33 years. 
it's like a, a touchstone, right? When politicians come into town, they come here because it's a political center. Meet Joe Garcia, Cuban-American and in the past a politician himself. Versailles was named after the palace in France where Cuba's independence was signed between the U.S. and Spain. By the way, we're having Cuban coffee now. It's one of the things that bring people together. I think everybody serves Cuban coffee. And this is a legalized form of uh, stimulant. If you have eight about these a day, or it's about like doing a gram of cocaine, I think. For decades, cafes like Versailles have been where Cuban exiles have made America feel a little bit more like home. My grandfather, towards the end of his life, you know, he rode a tricycle because he couldn't drive anymore. And every morning he'd shower, shave, get on his tricycle, he'd drive four blocks, and he'd park in a cafe near his house, and he'd sit and argue for four hours, then he'd drive back and have lunch with my grandmother and talk about all those communists, all the old guys that were there with him that were communists. From the park where older folks play dominoes and argue, to the coffee window in front of Versailles where they gather and argue, Little Havana has been the Cuban face of Miami. And it's still sold that way to tourists. But look a little closer, and you'll see that that picture is starting to shift. Come over here. So every day, these are newspapers that are that are put together from the different communities and the sort of setup. And they used to be all Cuban, right? But now you've got a Venezuelan, see El Venezolano, got next to it El Colombiano, as these communities start moving forward, and uh, and they sort of start setting up. You know, uh, people think Hispanics are Hispanics, but we're quite different. Uh, we have a lot of similarities, but very different perceptions and different approaches to things. Alvaro Alvarez first came to the United States with his family when he was five years old. They eventually settled in Little Havana, but they weren't Cuban. They're Nicaraguan. Well, so growing up here, you know, you saw, uh, it was interesting for me because you saw a lot of uh, Latin people in, in good positions, doctors, lawyers, but they were Cuban. So I really couldn't relate. And we didn't really have a lot of uh, uh, role models of Nicaraguan descent. So that was a challenge for my generation. It makes sense that when Spanish-speaking people from other countries made Miami home, they'd seek out other Spanish speakers. But just because everyone speaks Spanish, which is still the predominant language in Little Havana, doesn't mean that everyone will blend together. Not at all. Uh, that's like if you speak to uh, somebody from Scotland or Ireland or England and an American. You know, I mean to say something, but the other person that's not Nicaraguan can understand something else. And as Central and South Americans have arrived in Little Havana, there have been tensions. One person who didn't want to give their name for fear of making waves in the Cuban community said that the early days were tough. Some Cubans called Nicaraguans Indians. As we drove around Little Havana, it struck me that you know, I never thought about the differences in culture between Latino people. In my mind, all Spanish speakers are a monolith, which of course is silly. But for someone like me, who's not familiar with the nuances of these cultures, it's hard to see the changes happening in Little Havana. But for the people on the inside, Cubans who have been there for decades, it's apparent. I think it has been a challenge in that there is a lot of nostalgia about Little Havana. Corinna Mabius is the president of the Little Havana Merchants Alliance. So I think when people saw the landscape of the neighborhood change and some of the businesses move out that had been kind of iconic businesses in the neighborhood, there was this feeling about, oh my gosh, Little Havana's changing, it's not the same as it used to be. For some Cubans, they've already lost the first Havana. And having the second one in Miami start to change, well, that's hard. But Corinna says the Cuban heart of Little Havana is not going away. 
It's just getting a new layer. And in fact, that's in line with the neighborhood's history. It was actually once a, um, a Jewish neighborhood who then decided to move to other suburbs when there was a, a building boom. And they're like, okay, we're going off to the next suburbs. Then Cubans came in, and of course, the number of Cubans who came in was increased tremendously with the rise of Castro. And now the presence of Nicaraguans and Salvadorans is starting to rival that. But the real test of accepting that change might be with a group of elderly Cuban conservatives who gather daily in front of Versailles Cafe. No, we're not happy with it. We open the door for everybody. Because the United States opened the door for us. We give thank you very much to the United States to open the Cuban people to live in this country. This acceptance of change in Little Havana is even reflected in the menu at Versailles. Just look at the dessert section. This, this place serves a wonderful tres leches, but tres leches is a Nicaraguan dessert. So the Cubans having to up the tres leches because they don't want to be upstage. They have a cuatro leches, you know, which is a, a mishmash of some of the most sugary contained foods in the history of the world. But, you know, each of these things start being absorbed into other cultures. Tonight, the main street in Little Havana, Calle Ocho, or 8th Street, is being blocked off for parades celebrating the Colombian festival of Carnival Barranquilla. After dusk falls, a range of groups parade down the street, from a Colombian brass band to a bunch of teenage girls dancing in flouncy skirts. Tonight, Little Havana could very well be renamed Little Latin America. So one of my favorite writers lives in Miami, Edwige Danticat. She's the author of several amazing books, which you can find links to at our site, stateoftheReunion.com. Now, if you've listened to our show before, you know that every episode, we ask residents to write a letter to the place they call home. And for Miami, I had to ask Edwige for a letter. And she said yes. Dear Miami, I just left the funeral of Luc Lemoyne a 15-year-old Haitian-American boy who was killed on the side of one of your highways. By the sound of the joyful singing inside the Liberty City Church, you would have thought it was a revival and not a home-going, as the funeral service was called. Miami, you have been Luc Demoe's home for his entire life, but it sure hasn't been easy. Luke's mother is in jail, and his father was recently deported to Haiti for a crime he was acquitted of. Miami, please forgive me for starting out my letter to you like this and not with a well-deserved praise song to your gorgeous tropical weather, your world-class hotels, your golden beaches. But one of the things I love about you, Miami, is that in addition to your housewives and basketball wives, your vices and burn notices, you are so full of other stories. You are the beacon city and the dreams of refugees as they are becoming delirious after days and sometimes weeks at sea. No wonder 60% of your residents are foreign-born. Miami, you still remain the only city where I was once sitting in a home and a bullet came through the back door. When the crime scene investigation officer came, Go CSI Miami. I asked him if he thought someone was trying to shoot us. And Miami, when someone's trying to shoot you, he said, you know it. 
I took that to mean, Miami, that you don't have many secrets. Maybe that's why novelists and other storytellers love you so much. No one will ever be surprised that you are both dirt poor and filthy rich. And I'm not just talking about money, either. You are rich in stories, too. Stories like Luc Lemoyne's and so many others. Kembela, Miami. Love, Edwige Dantica. As Edwige alluded to, the ties between South Florida and her birthplace, Haiti, are interweaving, complicated. Coming up, an earthquake in Haiti makes for shifting ground in Miami. There is a, a Haitian proverb that says that when, when Haiti sneezes, uh, Miami catches the cold, the U.S. catches the cold. So we're very close here, only 70, 750 uh, you know, uh, miles away. That's ahead on State of the Reunion. If you want to hear and see more of State of the Reunion, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com backslash so true. That's S-O-T-R-U. We're on Facebook, iTunes, and of course, stateoftheunion.com. You're listening to State of the Reunion. I'm Al Letson, and today we're in Miami, Florida. But this next story starts over 700 miles away in a different country on January 12th, 2010. The day of the earthquake, I was at my house, and then suddenly I heard something I never heard, a sound that I never, I never heard in my life. I hear this and I'm, I'm thinking it's something that really wants to pull this house and throw it away. And I'm, I'm saying to myself, Jesus, 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 make this stop. I was in my house studying chemistry actually when that passed. And I started to shake. I feel my legs, so I started to run. My God, everything is destroyed. L'hôpital général crasé. The hospital is destroyed. La bdim la bank crasé. The bank is destroyed. La bdim bon côté crasé. Parce que la gola kaimwe noke na zon côté mien. Everything is destroyed. For about 30 or 10 seconds, there was an eerie silence. You didn't hear anything. And then some guy came out of the dust with his hand hanging, blood screaming, then he fell, died, I think. My house was completely destroyed, so I was living under a tent. And we see the, everything covered in dust. Every people, we, we were all black, but everybody came white at the same time. They never found my child. Every day, my, my husband and some other people to help remove the bodies. But after seven days, we still did not recover the body of my, my older daughter, of Shwina. Haiti, more than 300,000 dead and about the same number of injuries. Somewhere near a million people left homeless. Now, Miami is only about an hour and a half away by plane, and it's also home to a large, vibrant Haitian community. So in the aftermath of the earthquake, many Haitians made their way to Miami, 
Some had family here and escaped the chaos at home to stay with them. Others were injured so badly that they were medevac to Miami hospitals. In the first nine months after the quake, nearly 7,000 Haitians ended up in South Florida. The first night, they put us in a hotel and, and I couldn't sleep. I was waking up all the time and I was hearing the noises and I realized that it was the elevator going up and down, but I would get out and start running because I thought, again, something was going on. The first couple weeks after the earthquake were hard for the survivors. Dealing with the trauma, adjusting to the new surroundings in Miami, mourning the loss of loved ones. It's later, after the dust has settled, and the dearly departed have been buried, that the practical losses come into focus. I, I was a working woman all my life. I was independent, and now I have to ask everybody for something, and it's very difficult. It's not that Marie Jobert Atta Jean Jean can't work. Back in Haiti, she owned her own business. It says she's not allowed to. She and many Haitians don't have visa status that entitles them to work in the States. What is the most difficult is I really feel that I lost. I lost. I lost my autonomy because I am able to work and I want to work. I used to live in my house, raise my children on my own. Now I have to live with extended family. It's extremely difficult and I cannot provide for myself. And that not only puts pressure on earthquake survivors who ended up here in Miami, but on the Haitians who'd been living here already and had to become hosts. Most of them, as you, you just heard, are living with family members. Family members who didn't realize that they were going to be staying that long. That's Marlene Bastien, the executive director of a nonprofit, FAM, the Haitian Women of Miami. So we see an increase in frustrations, an increase in, in domestic violence, in, in, an increase in problems, not only with the family members, but also with the host families and also with the children. Children, like Roald Conge and her brother Yori. I'm 10, actually going to 11. Yeah. I'm May, I'm going to be 9. How do you like living here? Actually, it's good, but I like Haiti better because I got no friends there. Pain, like these children have had to experience, is always just under the surface, like a wound that hasn't fully healed. One wrong move, and the stitches break. Well, the children, as you can see, they suffer. They are depressed. They come here, they have to adjust. They, sp they speak perfect English only after a year, but you can see how easily you know, the tears come down. Uh, you know, the, 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 pr the pressure on them is really, really great. But even with that pressure, what struck me was their resiliency. One little boy named Peterson, everyone called him the little mayor because of how he took charge of things around him. He was crushed under a building in Haiti for four days. Once in Miami, he had 16 surgeries to recover. His head is ringed with scars. But when we meet him, he zips around on his scooter, showing off the housing complex he now lives in. He says he wants to be a doctor when he's older. I want to help my family. I want to help I want to help my doctor too because he helped me a lot. He go to Orlando with, with us. He do everything with us. Peterson isn't the only young Haitian now living in Miami who has big dreams. I met a whole group of North Miami high school students who came here after the earthquake. What was surprising to me was that these teenagers were middle class in Haiti. You know, my view of Haiti before talking to them was that they were just very poor people and the well-to-do. 
But these kids set me straight that there was definitely a middle class. And in their opinion, the schools that they went to in Haiti were superior to the American schools. Serge Komu is 17 years old. I was expecting like real tough stuff, but then I got lazy stuff. kindergarten stuff. And also the way people perceive things. As you can see, most kids in this school judge you by what you wear and not by how you think. So it was hard because you will tr even even if you try not to, at the end you'll just try to fit in with them. They also have to fight the stereotype that a recently arrived Haitian must be poor or no good. Modeline Marcellus says they're trying to lead by example. It, when you look at Haiti in in our TV in here, you're gonna see the bad things. You don't see the good things in in here. Like we are not bad. We trying to do well at school, trying to go to college, so that later we can help our family and lady or our country. The earthquake in Haiti not only affected the Haitians on the island, but also Haitians here in Miami, some of whom have been in the U.S. for a long time. You know, I left Haiti I was eight years old, so my memories, you know, for living there were eight-year-old memories. Maggie Austin is a part of the Haitian diaspora, a vast number of people who fled the turmoil and poverty of their homeland over the past decades, including, it's estimated, the majority of Haiti's professionals, doctors and lawyers and such. Maggie grew up in the U.S. and became a lawyer herself and ended up working in academia for the past 15 years. And she sort of lost touch with her homeland. I stopped going purposefully because, you know, when I realized that there was no change happening, I just, I just couldn't go and witness everything that was going on. I mean, every time I went back, it would just get worse and worse. And I just couldn't do, emotionally, I couldn't do it anymore. So I stopped going. I hadn't been back for 20 years. But even before the earthquake, she'd been feeling like she needed a change in her life to do something that she really cared about, direct all her passions towards. I didn't know what that was. And on the day of the earthquake, the same day of the earthquake, my mother had a stroke also. So we were in the hospital while the earthquake was happening. And it happened instantaneously, just like that. I knew, I knew that... I needed, to, I needed to go and give back. Practically out of thin air, Maggie and a group of others opened Konbeat for Haiti. In Creole, Konbeat means gathering or collaborating for the common good. In the days after the earthquake, a friend, now a board member, gave Konbeat a large space in an old shopping plaza. We called him up and he said, okay, 30 minutes, somebody will meet you with keys, and he gave us this space. The storefront is next to the family dollar, not far from Little Haiti. Maggie says in the weeks following the earthquake, this space became a hub for people trying to get in touch with their families. They had laptops donated and a bank of phones. We had probably had 20 telephones. Now we're down to four. But people were coming here every single day trying to get in touch with their family members. I mean, we were, we were here virtually the entire time, all day. Conebeat has not only served as a physical gathering place, but it's also got a bigger mission helping to rally the Haitian diaspora back to serving their homeland. The diaspora were people who basically gave up on Haiti. You left. And as a matter of fact, there's a word for the diaspora in Haitian Creole. It's, they call us blancs. Blanc in French is white. Even though we're not white, they call us blancs. We're basically you're foreigners to us. You're no longer Haitians. Um, but that's no longer the case. I mean, the Haitian diaspora is probably the greatest resource that Haiti has. 
and we're re-energized and we're reinvesting in the future of our country. Maggie herself has been back six times since January 2010. And one of Combeat's primary missions is to help organize groups of people to go to Haiti and volunteer, including nurses, lab technicians, people taking their vacation time to help in Haiti. They've sent nearly 250 groups of people, most of them Haitian American since the earthquake, and more people are still signing up. Here in Miami, the epicenter of the movement to help the small island country might have started in little Haiti, but it spread out all across the city, even to some unlikely places. That's where Pat Riley lives in a $20 million penthouse. All of these condos are multi, multi, multi-million dollar condos. We're standing on the corner of First and Alton Streets in Miami Beach. You can see the ocean through the gaps between those fancy condos, glittery clubs and hotels just blocks away. It's not the type of place you'd expect to be a hub of social activism. And the group of guys standing around me are not the ones you'd expect to be leading the charge. Uh, to be honest, I don't feel like I'm cool enough to be hanging out with these guys. I mean, if John Johnson was in Miami Vice today, he'd look like them. Slick shoes, shiny watches, expensive sunglasses. These guys know how to live. I'm actually a real in real estate development. I represent manufacturers and I specialize in strategy and marketing. Set up large family entertainment centers uh, on an international level. And yet, these guys, be they real estate developers or arcade owners, they ended up taking action after the earthquake in a way that surprised even them. I'd never volunteered for anything in my entire life. That's Dirk D'Souza. The night the earthquake happened, he heard from his friend David Goldfarb, the one who owns the arcade business. David had just seen the first images of chaos in Haiti on TV and was horrified. This being Miami, everyone knows someone who's Haitian, so it felt like the earthquake had hit in their own backyard, and David thought we should do something about this. We immediately sent down uh, two of our trucks, because we're in the arcade business and we set up um, large entertainment centers, and we have the infrastructure, we sent them down here to First and Alton. So Dirk made a Facebook event and sent it to about 600 of his friends, telling them to bring goods for Haiti to the corner of First and Alton Streets. But little do they know the power of Facebook. So what happened is that, I mean, it ended up being forwarded to about 7,000 people that same day. So by the time we got the trucks out here at 6 o'clock at night, there were probably 50 people out here just waiting for us. There was so much traffic backup that the cops came. But when they heard the group was gathering materials for the Haitian earthquake relief, they backed off. Though at first, some of what was being donated was a little, well, impractical. Very Miami Beach. Jeff Feldman was also a part of the organizing group. Part of it was compassion and part of it was, uh, you know, just thinning out your closet. We had an overabundance of high-heeled shoes donated. We actually had to tell people to stop bringing... <laughs> Manolo, Manolo Blahnik yeah, yeah. were delivered <laughs> with red bottom soles at the day of the earthquake. But as the days passed, they managed to start corralling things that were needed. Rubbing alcohol, diapers, water. They were filling truck after truck. Then the question was, how are we going to get this to Haiti? Not an easy thing to do in the aftermath of a quake. But these are guys with connections, and within days, they had access to an aircraft hangar for organizing donations and a deal with Project MetaShare to get what they were collecting flown into Haiti. Albert Gomez is another one of the original members. We were getting calls from organizations all over the world 
the Netherlands, 500,000 trips of antibiotic. Where do, where do we ship them? Yeah, $4.5 million in antibiotics. So they it, couldn't figure out how to get it to Haiti. In less than a week, these guys had gone from leading their normal Miami Beach lives to running what was turning into quite a complex relief organization. They called it First in Alton, after the street corner. But after six straight days of work loading and unloading trucks, they were ready to wrap it up. Then they heard from the folks at Project Metashare that they could really use some assistance on the ground in Haiti. You know, so that day we went and got shots, we went and did our thing, we told our loved ones, we, got, we went to Home Depot, we were like Rambo, you know, everybody had ropes all over them and pocket knives and all this other stuff. Eight of the first Nalton members went. First they helped set up a field hospital, then distributed food to orphanages, camps, police stations. They did whatever they thought needed doing. We were like the inglorious bastards of the relief effort. In fact, we were called that by a, a, a Navy admiral. The way they went about doing things was more than a little controversial with some of the bigger, more established aid groups in Haiti. They became consumed by their work. And I remember looking at them and I said, Albert, you have a job, you have bills to pay, and I'm worried that you're getting you know, too caught up. And uh, I don't remember exactly what Albert said to me. I think it was, a, it was an expletive, the first part of it. But the second part of it is, these people need us. I'm not getting too caught up, and I don't have time to talk to you right now. But not long after they went to Haiti, things started to change, and divisions began to show. Some people were passionate about doing one thing in Haiti, and others something else. I think, uh, I think something happened to us. We had kind of lost our way post-earthquake. We were first responders, specialists, logistics, anything you need, we can get it done kind of deal, because things were just coming by grace. But we didn't have a connection to the community that was lasting other than our desire to help. I mean, it's great that they've had this life-changing experience. And it's something that they've been able to tell all their friends about. But what comes out of that, I suppose, just remains unclear. Trenton Daniel was a Miami Herald reporter in Haiti who covered the aftermath of the earthquake. And after the earthquake, I wrote stories about how best to respond, um, who is best qualified to respond, the debate over small groups versus the more established groups, and the limitations of humanitarian work. And I got a lot of hate email. <laughs> People telling me, oh, how can you criticize us for the work that we've done? And it wasn't so much that the work, that the stories were critical of them, but it just pointed out the flaws. At this point, most of the first and Dalton guys have gone back to normal life. Albert's still involved through Facebook and traveling to Haiti on a number of projects. Jeff is back and forth to Haiti as well, but he started working on his own thing, a new development project there. Once the chaos subsides, it's really hard to keep that energy going. You know, it's only natural. I mean, these people had lives and really don't have a connection to Haiti like the Haitian expats do. Yet, they stepped out of their day-to-day -day lives to help. You know, I've seen this story before about people helping others in need all across the country, from Greensburg, Kansas to New Orleans. The difference is, I've never seen this story with these characters. And I'm sure their operation wasn't perfect, but there's a part of me that's with Dirk when he says, in terms of people around the United States and around the world wanting to make real positive, effective change in response to a crisis or a disaster, our advice is go for it. Do it first, ask questions later, and if you get in someone's way, have a sense enough to be able to step aside. 
But another part of me wonders, if you're used to South Beach, how do you know what will work in Haiti? When do you jump in, and when do you ask for marching orders? Coming up, coaxing plants out of the concrete of Miami's toughest neighborhood. That's ahead on State of the Reunion. Support for State of the Reunion comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, a growing network of listeners, producers, and stations collaborating to make public radio more public. PRX.org. You're listening to State of the Reunion. I'm Al Letson, and one image of Miami that everyone seems to know is this one. When I was a kid, I loved Miami Vice. I wanted to be Detective Tubbs. They were the coolest cops I'd ever seen. Nothing like the coffee drinking, donut eating, pot cops on other shows. These Vice cops, like the city they worked, had style. Now, outside of TV world, Miami has more than its share of crime. And a part of that stems from the fact that it has more than its share of poverty. One of the toughest ghettos is smack up against the city's downtown in the shadow of its skyscrapers. But before Overtown was abandoned buildings and drive-by shootings, it was called the Harlem of the South. Oh my gosh. Overtown. It was the cultural center of the southeastern United States. Meet Marvin Dunn. He's a retired psychology professor and an expert on the history of the African-American community in Miami. And back in the 30s and 40s, he says there were several theaters and fancy hotels in Overtown. So what happened? Well, one of the first things that brought Overtown's demise was integration. When black folks from New Jersey and from Ohio found out that they could stay at the Eden Rock or the Fountain Blue on Miami Beach, why stay at the Ward Hotel in Overtown? When black people in Overtown found out that they could shop in stores downtown without discrimination, they did. They stopped shopping on Second Avenue and went to Flagler Street. This happened all across the South. By necessity, segregation created strong economies in black communities. And when the proverbial walls were torn down, black businesses were hurt. Overtown might have survived, though, had it not been for another major factor, the interstate highway system. The interstate highway system destroyed many historic black communities because uh, when they started planning the interstate system, the sense was that removal of blight is good. Put the, the interstate through, you wipe out all these shacks and dilapidated buildings, and that's the good thing. But construction of that highway forced more than 20,000 residents out of their homes. Many of them ended up in the projects. Tremendously overcrowded community just north of here called Liberty City, which exploded in a major race riot in 1980, which we have still not recovered from that completely. So the downside of, of these events have led to the community you see here now. Uh, vacant lots, vacant people, uh, absence of jobs, and an absence of hope. Back when Dunn was still a professor, he had an idea, a garden. So he offered his students in the community psychology course he was teaching a little extra credit if they'd come to Overtown on the weekend and help make a garden out of an abandoned lot. We didn't seek permission to plant on these lots. We just started planting. And I figured, what are, they, what are folks going to say? What are the owners going to say? Put the cracked needles back, put the broken bottles in the garbage back. So we didn't ask, we just started doing it. Marvin called it Roots in the City. 
They started out with a botanical garden, flowers, trees, anything to add a splash of color to the urban gray. And one Saturday morning, some brothers were sitting out across the street, not volunteering, mind you, just watching three sheets of the wind at 10 o'clock. And one of them said, hey, why don't you all plant something we can eat? And I thought, well, that's a good point. Give, give the brother credit. So within months, we moved into growing produce on vacant lots. Where I'm standing right now, I can see the uh, skyscrapers over to one side of me and then the highway cutting through the center of the neighborhood. And I'm in the middle of a farmer's market in a place that used to be just a vacant lot. There is a chicken, a rooster, uh, walking right in front of me. Actually, a really beautiful rooster. This is kale. This is collard green. And um, we're sold out and but out of our mustard green. This is also arugula. I mean, on any given Wednesday, you can find a half a dozen nationally known chefs, internationally known chefs out here. When the interstate came through Overtown, it marooned the neighborhood, cut it off from the more vital parts of Miami. Farmer's market is starting to change that, though it's not easy. The funding is tight, especially after the group lost a city grant it had gotten for years. They had to downsize the number of lots they garden and lay off several people, which is unfortunate because the jobs at the garden had made all the difference to Overtown residents like Edward Robinson. Growing up in Overtown is giving people like us opportunities and chances. Me, myself, personally, I've been in prison for a long time. And when I got out, it was difficult finding a job. I found this job here, and I've been sticking with it. I've been doing great. You know, I tell you, if, if we don't find a way to put inner-city residents who have limited skills to work, earning their own way in a self-sustaining effort, this country's going to go down the tubes. And that's really the, the reason that this farm is here. What's happening in Overtown? Transformation of a neighborhood? Well, it can also happen in a person's life. For example, take Mr. Leroy Jones. You know, I started very young, man. I started, like, selling dope needles for a dollar when I was 10 years old. We used to buy them from the junkies that worked for Jackson Hospital. They would sell us a box. They called them works. You know, they would sell us a box of works with 100 in it for $100. We sold them for $2. We made a $100 profit off every box. The beginning of Leroy's story is a classic tale of a young hustler learning the ways of the street. Raised in a ghetto like many young black men he grew up with, Leroy dropped out of school, got addicted to drugs, and served time for several offenses. All signs pointed to Leroy becoming a casualty of the streets. Just another statistic. But this is not that story. This one actually is the, the first government award I won. That's the Merit Award. That's the, that's the highest award anybody can receive in Miami-Dade County. So I'm the only, only black, only non-professional person, and only convicted felon to ever win that award. In fact, this whole wall is covered with awards that Leroy has won. There's so many plaques, I can't even see the wallpaper. So how did he go from selling dope to winning awards for Miami's Rich and Powerful? Well, that comes back to a moment he had when he was in prison for the third time and on the phone with his mother. And she said, you know this your third time in prison? She said, Leroy, man... Obviously, you're not a good criminal if you've been to prison three times. She say, you, you got so much. You know what? She say, you got something all black boys should have, and that's common sense. That business instinct that Leroy had back as a 10-year-old selling drugs on the street to mark up the product and make a hefty profit, well, he could use those skills for ill or for good. And so when he got out of prison, 
he went to work in a small grocery store his mother and sister owned. And I changed the store completely around. And it went from 1,000 square feet to 4,000 square feet in six months. Now all of the small businesses in the neighborhood asked my mom and sister at the, what they did to change the store. And they was telling them that I did it. So about 11 of them came to the store one Sunday to ask to meet me. And so they wanted me to help them with their store. So that's how this started. It was casual at first. Leroy would close the store on Sundays and neighborhood business owners would gather there, trading tips. Soon, a sort of informal local business organization was formed, with Leroy leading the way. He called it the Neighbor to Neighbor Association, or NANA. And then he got an idea. He and the other members would choose a local store that was struggling. Like the person was L and M grocery store, and they would say the address to buy everything that the business sell and donate the goods to the people that live in public housing. So I convinced everybody to go in and spend at least $25. So the idea was to buy everything except for the tobacco and alcohol. In essence, Leroy had created his own grassroots version of a grant-making program, giving small black-owned businesses a sudden cash infusion. The, the first one we did, I think the business owner made, I want to say it was $17-plus in one day, when they was only used to making like five dollars and $600 a day. So we bought, I would say, 95 90 six percent of the stuff that they sold in one day and now they restock the store with fresh new goods and study things that have been sitting on the shelves for a long time the buyouts got so successful and popular they had to stop doing them because they were getting too big to manage but this was a kind of activity that drew some attention a local paper did a write-up about him and one day leroy got a visit from a county commissioner asking him to think about being a channel for government grant making but even with the commissioner's connections, it took a while for Leroy to get people in city government to take him seriously. Now, even the blacks didn't want to sit by me because I wore the T-shirts and the short pants and didn't speak their language and didn't have the ties and the suit. So they didn't want to be by me because I didn't make them look good. When I met Leroy, he was dressed the same way as those first meetings, shorts, T-shirts and a ball cap. He looked nothing like a power broker. He doesn't have the polish of a typical Miami businessman or politician. He's plain spoken, but there's an honesty that emanates from him that's refreshing. What you see is what you get. But maybe Leroy's greatest quality that the people couldn't see was his tenacity. It took me a year. And I said to myself, there's no way this town at that time going to have $5 billion budget and I not get me none of that money. This wasn't money that Leroy was going after for himself. What he was creating was a nonprofit that supported small business development. And the city went for it, giving him $100,000 to disperse in his first year. As unlikely as it may seem, Leroy became a bridge between Miami power brokers and small inner city businessmen and women. With a grant from Nana, a mom and pop business can do a whole range of things. From buying computers, to buying inventory, to fixing up their shop. People would come to Leroy for help who'd never even thought of applying for a government grant before. Uh, my name is Arsene Omega. I'm at 5401 Northwest 2nd Avenue, Miami. I do custom tailoring and retail. I have been here for about 32 years. Several years ago, Mr. Omega had just bought the building his store is in, but it was in pretty bad shape. He'd run through his savings and was about to close up shop when Leroy came in and said Nana could help. I didn't think that it was going to work. I said, man, I don't want to waste my time when he came, but it take me to many meetings. It pays at the end. It keep me be here for another, I don't know how long, but, but I'm still here. I have a lot of respect for him. 
Since Leroy's nonprofit gave out its first grant in 1999, he says his organization has funneled nearly $20 million in government money to small mom-and-pop businesses like Mr. Omega's. Part of what keeps him going is that he still feels he has a debt to repay to his community here in Miami. I wasn't a good kid, man. <laughs> so I remember all the devastation that I inflict on this community, man. You know what I mean? By hustling and robbing and stealing cars and all that kind of stuff. So and that's my way of giving back. So there's one part of Miami that definitely brings people together, and we've all heard about it, the clubs. Uh, uh, yeah, 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 uh, Miami, uh, uh, South Beach, bringing the heat, uh. Miami is, um, this is a city where people on a Friday or Saturday night, they'll get dressed up and, you know, after midnight, they all go to nightclubs and, and dance to Top 40 or Evolve Disco Music, you know, house or techno, you know, and, and that's like kind of, those are the meat and potatoes places where people hang out. Those clubs where people go to party are mostly spots where DJs are spinning. And you can find live music, but it's not as prevalent as you might think. There's one band, though, that's created a Miami sound that's bringing people from all the city's enclaves to the dance floor. The Spam All-Stars. What's up, Miami? It's Thursday night at a club in Little Havana. The Spam All-Stars have been playing here weekly for years. And this audience is like a microcosm of Miami itself, ethnically and generationally. Everyone, blacks, whites, Latinos, from baby boomers to Generation Y, straight, gay, no matter, everyone is moving and enjoying themselves on a packed dance floor. The members of the Spam All-Stars say this all happened organically. It started with Andrew Yeomanson, a.k.a. DJ LaSpam, and his passion for records. These are Cuban records across the top, and that gets into the Puerto Rican records after that, into the Latin jazz. and then the Years ago, he had a show on a little pirate radio station in Miami Beach, and he'd spin those records, then invite his buddies into the studio to jam over them. Before he knew it, a band started to form, and Andrew called it the Spam All-Stars for one particularly silly song he made sampling an old Spam commercial. And the members brought their own musical influences along with them. I'm Chad Bernstein. I play trombone and conch shells. Well, Chad, you know, is uh, doing his doctorate uh, at the University of Miami, so he plays in the concert jazz band. Jose uh, Elias, I play guitar and the Cuban instrument called tres. I'm Mercedes Sabal. I play the flute. I think I bring here like the charanga style. I have the Cuban style in my heart. The band's sax player, A.J. Hill, was born and bred in Overtown. Tomas Diaz, who plays percussion, is from Cuba. Another thing that sets the Spam All-Stars apart is that they blend all these instruments with the sampling and beats of Miami's discos. When the band plays live, Andrew sets up his turntables in the center of the stage with the band assembled around him. What he spins forms the foundation of a song, and then he mixes the band live from the stage over top of that. I was always, always, always looking for the groove that would not, the relentless groove, you know, this, these were things that attracted me, like, from when I first heard funk music or, or dub reggae music, it was like this relentless drum and bass stuff that uh, you could do anything over that. That's like a blank canvas to me.
And what the Spam All-Stars have come up with is something that sounds very Miami. From my perspective, I've been in Miami all my life, and the, the group totally embodies that. It's Look, Miami's always been a melting pot. It's always had a melting pot sound. I think if you look back through the history of Miami music, you can see how groups naturally sampled from the population and were playing. It's the same as us. They evolved in the same way. They were bands that played in nightclubs and bars. Wherever people come to dance, the audience dictates to you what's going to work. You can see and hear the Spam All-Stars on our website at stateoftheReunion.com. Miami is the type of town that defies your expectations. Of course, there's sand, sun, nightclubs, and good times, but in between all of that, so much more is going on. From cultures finding a home in Little Havana, to the plight of new Haitian arrivals trying to heal in the wake of a tragedy, to a plain-spoken man making his community better one business at a time. And yes, the city itself is a patchwork of ethnic enclaves that can seem wholly divided. Yet, everywhere you go, there are people bridging the gap. Miami is coming together. And a part of the reason for that is that there are a lot of new people coming in here, including a lot of new black people. And I think that in the aftermath of the earthquake, South Florida as a community, you know, came together. I mean, it was people felt compassionate for people from Haiti. This is, the, this is a situation that has an impact on the entire community. And that is why we believe that we do need a community response. When it comes to the Cuban community, I think that we are definitely growing up. We make huge mistakes because we're a new city and a young community. But, you know, it's a resilient place. This is a place where people still want to come and start a new life. Miami, Bridging the Divide, was produced by Tina Antolini, with help from senior editor Taki Telenitas. Now, we couldn't have done this show without help from our amazing production partners, WLRN's Under the Sun. You can find links to them on our website at stateoftheReunion.com. The rest of the Sochu staff is researcher Marietta Sonotis, business manager Bree Burge, producers Laura Starcheski and Brenton Crozier. The director of development is Stacy Cobb. Ian D'Souza is the Wolverine of our merry band of X-Men, meaning he's the best at what he does, and sometimes what he does ain't pretty. Special thank yous to our interns, Brett Jaspers and Melissa Lee, and to Dr. Marie Denise Gervais of the University of Miami for her assistance in translating our Haitian stories. So True is distributed by PRX and NPR, with major funding provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Al Letson, and remember, things fall apart. Our job, all of us, is to bring them back together. But every time I come, I always wind up staying. This the type of town I can spend a few days in Miami, the city that keeps the roof blazing. Support for NPR comes from NPR member stations and from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. And the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, 
making grants to solve social and environmental problems at home and around the world, on the web at Hewlett.org. This is NPR.